Hello, and welcome to the Danielle Newland podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is Dr. Mary Lou Jepson, serial entrepreneur, inventor, pioneer in AR and VR, medical imaging and telepathic technology, former professor at MIT Media Lab, and currently founder of Open Water. Mary Lou spent most of her childhood years unwell before she was finally diagnosed with a brain tumour in her 20s and going through that had a huge impact on her life as you might expect. For the many years she was quite literally dying, she decided she only wanted to work on really interesting projects. As she says to me in this interview today, I never really thought I would live very long and so I wanted to find really interesting things to do with my life for however long I might live. Mary Lou became fascinated with holography and optics whilst at school and spent her career pioneering in AR, VR and in the optics space as an engineering executive at Google, Facebook, Oculus and with her own four startups which included the multi-billion dollar non-profit One Laptop Per Child. Mary Lou is now using her decades long experience in this space and her experience with a brain tumour to spearhead open water where the goal is to create the technology to be able to see deep into the body with the detail of a 3D camera. The implications of this technology will make critical diagnostics healthcare far more affordable and accessible for millions. But it could also mean we achieve telepathy, which is hugely exciting and something we talk about in this interview. So here is my conversation with Dr. Mary Lou Jepson. Mary Lou, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. My first question is always about people's upbringings because I think it shows a nice little path, a linear path or non-linear path of where people have gone in their career. So I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up and what were some of the experiences which shaped you? I grew up on a small farm in rural Connecticut that's now suburbia, but I was sick a lot and, I, and no one knew why I was sick a lot. So when I was not sick, I was um, doing what I wanted to do because I never really thought I would live very long and I just wanted to live before I died. So when I was 12, I spent many months in the hospital with an unknown disease and they really didn't think I was going to pull through. So after that hitting teenage years, like a lot of people go into, (laughs) you know, rebellion in a different way. I think my, um, mine was just to find really interesting things to do with my life for however long I might live. And during that time, I really saw, even in my early childhood, my parents really evolved. My dad was an auto mechanic and my mom was a school teacher. But by the time I went to college, my dad was a judge and my mom was a professor. So I watched them kind of reinvent themselves. So I felt, you know, I can do anything. I get to live. I didn't know that about your parents. That's fantastic. What great role models. In terms of your sickness, I know it ended up being a brain tumor, but how did it reveal itself as a kid? Just weird bumps all over me and just real fatigue. At one point, my red blood cell count went down to such a level that, you know, I couldn't walk and I couldn't make red blood cells. My bone marrow was killing them. So I had a severe aplastic anemia. That's what that means. Luckily, I didn't have leukemia, but, you know, I had explorations of all kinds of diseases. I've been diagnosed with it all, you know, seronegative Lyme, chronic fatigue syndrome, seronegative lupus. (laughs) I'm just on and on with uh, fibromyalgia, like all kinds of things that have very, you know, vague symptoms. And so the thing about healthcare is if you've got a set of symptoms, say five symptoms, whatever, you know, 90% of the time, it's these 10 things. And then 10% of the time, it's these gazillion things. And so I was in the gazillion category, especially because medical imaging was just not that good in the seventies. My brain tumor finally got diagnosed in 1995. And at that point I was nearly dead, but luckily I got it and then got better. But yeah. How do you get a diagnosis? If you can get a diagnosis, you got a shot at a cure, but if it's not diagnosed, what do you do? People just think you're crazy. Yes. I have fibromyalgia, so I totally sympathize. And well, supposedly I have it. I don't don't know what, but you know, I've had pain for a long time and, and that's, well, in fact, the doctor didn't even tell me that I went to the doctor and said, do you think it could be this? And they're like, oh yeah, maybe. And that was it. 
So who knows what I've got? But it's really interesting because that's a long time to be living with a tumour. I mean, you must be made of steel to have survived that long. And literally, it was, it, wasn't it a professor at your university that ended up paying for you to have an MRI scan? Is that right? That's right. At this point, I was doing my PhD in physics, and I was living in a wheelchair, sleeping 20 hours a day, and my body was full of sores and you know all different colors, and I couldn't move half of my face. I drooled, and it got so I couldn't even subtract, and I, I didn't think I deserved a PhD in physics from an Ivy League school, and so I dropped out. I called up my parents and asked if I could go uh, live in my room and just die. And so I dropped out and yeah, a professor sprung for the cost of it. I was, you know, that was graduate student healthcare at an Ivy league school in the mid nineties is it didn't, you didn't get an MRI. And that's, that's the reality for most people on the planet today. They don't get the MRI for the diagnosis of what they might have. Well, this is definitely something I want to dig deeper into because I know it's hundred percent impact of what you do now. But before we get there, I want to talk about holography. And obviously this is something that you got really into. Sure. How, what sparked your interest? It seems like an odd thing to get into unless you've had some exposure to it. So I'm guessing you might have. Yeah. I mean, not to date myself, but I think it was sixth grade when Star Wars came out for me, mm. <laughs> 1976, or maybe it was 77. Uh, and, you know, there was that scene where R2-D2 projects out a hologram of Princess Leia and she says, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope or something to that effect. And, and I saw that and it influenced me. And so when I got to college, there was an elective that looked really interesting to me in holography. So I took it and it's the closest thing to a religious experience I've really ever had. You know, you're in a really dark room, so dark, you can't see anything. And there's these beautiful lasers and you set up the optics and the whole room's a camera. And if you don't breathe and nothing moves more than a fraction of a wavelength of light, we used silver halide film back then, but you can develop and you, you see this magical thing in 3d that, Basically, the light uh, waves are travel back in time so that they can go construct what they reflected off of. And you see that as if it's an object and you can see it. I, I went on to create the world's first holographic video system so you could compute the, those complex interference patterns. It's basically Maxwell's equations. Like I men mentioned, I liked physics and I loved math and art and things like that. And my love of math and art as a child sort of came, which we didn't talk about, but they came together in that where my parents really actually wanted me to major in electrical engineering because they grew up poor and they struggled and they saw that I was really good at math and science. And they encouraged me to go into it just to get a job, just to like get the degree, get the union card, <laughs> and just so I can do whatever I want to do, but I can sure get a job. And that was the idea. And I thought, well, electrical engineering was kind of boring. I did it. I did the degree. I'm still on the board of the school of engineering at Brown, but you know, I wanted to do more than just that. And so what I really did was learn all I could about holography, the human visual system, computer science, computer graphics, device physics, and so forth, so that I could, you know, create the metaverse, basically, that's what I wanted to do. And so I, you know, became a pioneer in holography and VR and so forth in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, we're still waiting for it to really happen. But there's a lot of us that have done a lot of work for many decades towards this shared goal. I was going to ask you, because I know you went on to work at Facebook later, but in terms of the metaverse, what were you envisaging when you were kind of playing around with the optics and looking at holography? What was a dream for you? What did you look forward to the day that, because I, I assume when you talk about the metaverse, it didn't look how the metaverse is being proposed today, or did it? No, although I would make headsets and holograms that were really 3D. There was this field in the 80s and 90s called 3D computer graphics, and it was all shown on a flat screen, which I would constantly point out. And when I'd apply to get into those conferences then with my 3D auto stereoscopic, that means like no glasses technologies, I'd get rejected. And I thought, but then you should just call it computer graphics because it's not really 3D if it's shown on a flat screen. But of course, the thing is, that's what's used. Movies are on flat screens. And so you have a 3D model 
and you do what's called render or, you know, compute from an eye point of view. And that's how the majority of special effects are still done, but that was coming in at the time. But I, I thought that we should get rid of the flat screen and be able to, you know, why can't we exhale a display and have it appear in front of us or have screens on all surfaces and create optics such that it makes it feel like we're interacting with any place. I'm a visual learner. And, you know, I, I, one thing I'd like to do, you know, as I, <laughs> I want to dump the ideas out of my head in 3D because they are visual and complex. I'm an engineer and, you know, things are real things are in 3D. And so it's always confusing to people when you show it in 2D. But more importantly, I think, you know, I dream in 3D. I dream in color. Like everybody back then thought you only draw, dreamed in black and light. I would dream and see the colors of the lasers in my lab. And I knew I dreamed in color. It wasn't black and white. And I dream in 3D. And we work and live in 3D, but our world is so flat. And I just wanted to uh, work on that. I really just enjoyed it. And what were you thinking in terms of a career? So I'm, I'm sure your parents were over the moon that you were actually doing your electrical engineering degree. What, what did you think you were going to do when you graduated? Or were you not thinking oh. that far ahead? Oh, no, I, yeah, I wasn't. And then I was test driving submarines for my summer job. Yeah. I, I, we moved to New London, Connecticut, which was the submarine capital of the world. And I was checking out if I want to be an engineer. And they gave me a job sort of setting up the radio room, um, which is all analog. It's basically glorified crawling around on the floor and wrapping all the wires that can, can cross talk to each other with something called high mu metal, which um, anyway, so I graduated and I got a job if I wanted to test driving submarines, although they didn't allow women on submarines, but I only counted as a girl. So, you know, they let me, but I thought, well, that's not interesting. And the other offer I had I guess it was at Polaroid that was still around then. And then an alark applied to MIT, the MIT Media Lab that was just opening up then. And they had gotten the best holographer in the world to come in and, and start a group in holography. And I thought, wow, that would be fun. And I got in and it, I was so surprised it turned out, and, it, and it's still true, in a lot of technical fields, graduate school is free. Not only that, they pay you a small stipend to go sort of like Britain in the U S schools really expensive. Um, but I thought, why not? This sounds great. And it was just magical. One of the best few years of my life um, working there. And that's where I created with a group of graduate students, the world's first holographic video system. Incredible. Tell us about this video system. How did you come up with the concept and how long did it take to create? Uh, I was there a couple years. And in fact, further graduate students perfected it even further. We used a massively parallel supercomputer uh, called the Connection Machine, which supposedly modeled neural nets, sort of you know, the brainchild of Danny Hillis and Marvin Minsky. And it was really hard to use it for most models, but it was great for holograms. So I just made each processor in this thing, like a pixel in a hologram and computed that. Most of my work on this project was creating a screen that had one micron pixels at a time when people used really big, you know, the cube shaped screens that were, it's called cathode ray tube, the big heavy things that were basically limited to the width of a door. So that was why the screens at that time were only 36 inch diagonals because they'd have to fit through the door, but the pixel sizes were a, a couple millimeters. So it was really shocking to be able to make something like that. But I kept going around doing holography. I tried to work on optical computing and for a while using holography to compute with optics, which is, I think <laughs> there were some breakthroughs in optical computing. I look at quantum computing now and I think, well, why would anybody bother? But, you know, that was the, the quantum computing of its day. I got bored with that. I became a computer science professor in Australia. I was 24 then and I was a computer science professor. I didn't even have a PhD, but I was teaching computer graphics truly 3D computer graphics. And I collaborated with a fantastic holographic artist named Paula Dawson. And we co-created, or we're working to co-create a lunar illuminated hologram to fill this beach cove on the Great Barrier Reef. And 
then my visa wasn't renewed and I needed to scramble for a job. So this art institute hired me in that media art academy hired me in Germany. I became a fellow there and started, had to switch the project up a bit and made a solar illuminated hologram that filled in ancient ruins in Cologne. And at that point I thought, huh, I should go get my PhD. We've talked about that. But as I, as I got out of my brain tumor, um, I went back, petitioned to get back into grad school not being proud. I used the, I had a brain tumor excuse. It worked. They let me back in, finished my PhD in six months. And with two other grad students, we got $4 million from DARPA to commercialize our PhD work. But to do that, I really had to sell out and go flat, no longer 3D. I worked on 2D screens because I really, really, really needed health insurance at that point, because that part of my brain hasn't grown back. And I really do have to take a dozen different medications a day, every day now for 27 years. And I really need to get them every day to live. So I did sell out and learned how to be really good at, at high volume consumer electronics. And, and that was really quite useful. Everything that's happened, like I didn't even know about you going over to Australia, but everything seems to kind of collate to the next thing. And, and talking about, I, I read about this lunar projection, that this idea that you had, and I just thought, you're definitely not in the same realm as most people. Like your ideas are absolutely fantastic. But then oh, on top yeah. of that, you're pretty damn good at executing. And I know you weren't able to execute it in the end, but. Oh, the lunar. Yeah, I did the solar illuminated hologram and the lunar illuminated hologram got canceled, sadly. Yeah. But yeah, then I thought, well, why not just do it? project the video on the moon. So figured out how to do that. But the brain tumor slowed me down, but also. I got to, just because you can do it, mm. should you, <laughs> I guess, mm. and decided that maybe it's not necessary and not a kind of a bad idea. Weren't you getting death threats? I I'm was sure getting had that. death threats. Why yes. would you get death threats? Just because it was outlandish yeah. idea. Yeah. People wanted to preserve the moon. This was on a darkened moon. So a sliver moon where yeah. most of the moon is dark. So you could get enough light by redirecting yeah. sunlight incident on earth up, back up to the moon in a projection system. So I designed that. It was kind of flat, but it was kind of fun and, and whimsical, but I, yeah, I didn't do it. Um, I got a brain tumor focused on getting better. And then when I got better focused on getting health insurance and you know, a friend of mine owns a huge solar array because this used a square mile of mirrors that usually like focuses on a vat of water and boils the water. But instead you put a couple million dollars of optics on top of it and you can use that light like a huge collector, like a projector and project onto the moon. You can do it. Um, so are you going to is the question? No, I've got, you know, there's so many people many dying of so many diseases. Yeah. <laughs> it feels more important to focus on that, but yeah. it could. I mean, it's incredible, but like you said, focusing, I think the, the, the work that you're doing now is hugely impactful. Just before we get to that, you're quite well known for being a co-founder of One Laptop Per Child. And I know that was started out of MIT. Can you tell me a bit more about it and the impact it had? Yeah, sure. At the time with Nicholas Negroponte, I started One Laptop Per Child. He was the CEO. I was the chief architect and the chief technology officer. The impact it had um, by lowering the cost of a laptop to $100 rather than at that time where it was about $2,000. This is 2005 and plus a couple thousand dollars worth of software. That was unaffordable for education for most of the world. But if you could make something for $100 with open source software and various Wikipedia was just coming out around then, you could then change the equation of what a minister of education could do for the children in their country. And that's because you hit their textbook budget. And most countries own their textbooks, but the distribution is an issue, but they pay per year per student, you know, an average low to middle income country, 20 bucks per student. So if you could get into that five-year budget, it would be a wash because you could load the textbooks on the computer and update the textbooks. And so much more, right? So internet connected ability to download Wikipedia, download whatever you want to learn about, YouTube, upload to YouTube, just participate in getting access to the world's information and in the discussion. So that seemed out of reach before we made a $100 laptop, the sort of 
ancestor of what we've done in, in a sort of life years of consumer electronics is the Chromebook. Sundar, Sundar the, the CEO of Google, says that. He was running Chrome at the time and was really influenced. In fact, Google was one of our sponsors for this project. We did it as a not-for-profit, became a multi-billion dollar not-for-profit. I co-created the fastest growing consumer electronic category ever recorded, but most importantly, changed the educational opportunities for millions and millions of children, particularly in low and middle income countries where they were not going to get access. People thought this was a joke, like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Michael Dell, Craig Barrett, the then CEO of Intel, just thought it was never, ever going to work, but we did it. And it really ushered in a new era of access. Absolutely. And when, because I think there's quite a few ideas that you've had and quite a few things that you've done where people have almost scoffed at the idea. So I wanted to know what keeps you going when there's a lot of people saying, oh, it can't be done. What drives you to get it done? Oh, I think it means probably you're on the right track. People can say it can't be done. What would be actually really helpful if they would say why they think it can't be done. Because it might just be, I have a weird background because I fell in love with holography. So I'm pretty multidisciplinary in a world that says they like that, but actually it's pretty hard to sort of navigate through and become multidisciplinary. So I have different areas of expertise than most of my colleagues who went straight up through computer science, for example. So, or whatever now, you know, I can't tell you how many times in the last six years I've heard I'm a neuroscientist, so it's this way. I'm like, well, great, I'm a physicist. You know, we've actually invented all the tools you neuroscientists use. So if you tell me how that matters that you're a neuroscientist, I'd like to wonder because, like, how are you going to, if you don't understand the physics, how are you going to create the tool to see inside your body, your brain? But so, yeah, I, I, they feel they need to do it because when you say something that's outlandish, like it feels like you're breaking the rules. Like, can you really do, you know, video on the moon or make a hundred dollar laptop back in 2005 or, you know, whatever the thing, the holographic video. I mean, just saying that I, so many professors lit into me on how it would never work. What's useful. I remember in the hundred dollar laptop going to the chairman of a very, very large conglomerate consumer electronics giant in Asia to meet with him. And uh, he brought eight of his EVPs into the room. And they just started laughing hysterically at me, hundred dollar laptop. Ha ha ha. It was just me on the other side of the table in this gorgeous um, boardroom. And so dutifully, like the gender, it was Korea. There were, they were all men. The gender dynamic was interesting. And so like, I just took out a pad of paper. I was also, by the way, an MIT professor at this time. I'd left Intel where I was the chief technology officer of division to join the faculty of MIT to actually start on brain computer interfaces. But in talking to Nicholas, I realized I had been trying to do a low-cost laptop project at Intel. And they started with, you can't call it a laptop because I think there had been some burning issues of laps and they wanted to call it a notebook <laughs> computer. And I'm like, uh, you know, like anyway, so in talking to Nicholas, I realized I could probably get a hundred dollar laptop to work faster than a brain computer interface. So I was working on this laptop as an MIT professor. I say that because when you walk into a room in Korea, they might not respect your gender, but they respect that you're an MIT professor. They have great respect for that institution. And so I dutifully took out a pad and, and said, okay, tell me why it won't work. And they listed over the next 90 minutes, like, let it be 23 things. <laughs> and again, at the end of that, I, I just asked, you know, very politely taking the notes like a lawyer. And I said, okay, 16 of these we have solved, but these new seven, these are really good. You all know a lot about laptops and consumer electronics. Here's what I propose we do. Can I come back in three months? I'll take this back to the team. The team then was just me, but... They really didn't need to know that it was just me at that point, because, you know, it's like heresy to not do something with a hundred people at the large corporations. And I think, you know, small teams change the world, but it's a religion. And so I didn't tell them it was just me, but I did take it back to the team, me. And what I also did is took it to other people because I could get meetings at that time with chairmen of very large companies. And I'd go in and work with and talk to them and their chief technology officers and debug the problem on paper. 
And then finally, Kofi Annan had heard about the project through Nicholas and wanted to unveil the prototype at this big UN summit on the digital divide. So he unveiled my hand-soldered prototype of it. And then after that, 200 countries in the world wanted the laptops en masse for the children in their countries. And then I was able to sign up the very manufacturers who said it would never work. They're the toughest audience because they really do know a lot. People think Dell or HP make the laptops or whatever, and that's true. But really they're made by companies called like Quanta or Compal or Foxconn. And so those are the places that I've lived and breathed for the last several decades, toughing it out with the design team and in the manufacturing lines to realize en masse volume these things. You've had an incredible career. And I think when you said they know a lot, clearly they didn't know who they were sitting opposite as well, that you took the notes and went through each one because so many people would have just got the tail between the legs and walked out. It's not nice to be faced by a group of people, especially as a woman, I have to say, you know, with a whole group of men laughing at you. So I, I think that's incredible, but it's so you, isn't it? And I, actually, I've got a question for you. So you are pretty damn tough. I mean, in lots of different ways. But I want to know, do you feel ever, do you look back and think that having a brain tumor at such a young age and not knowing what it was, but knowing that you wanted to achieve something before you thought you were going to die, do you think that's impacted your personality and how you are now? Probably. I guess, you know, that's great. But I guess the other thing is in school, I'd always, they'd measure you when you take these tests, the standardized test, I'd always be in the top 1%. And so I just didn't get it. Like, even though I was a girl, by all metrics, I'm in the top 1%, the top fraction of 1%. Even my parents freaked out that one of my siblings might not be smart. So they gave us all IQ tests and they were shocked that I was the highest one. And it was super high. And like, I knew I was smart. I didn't know then what that test was, score was. I still don't actually know. I just know it was high. When people say you can't do it, you know, I just know I'm smart. Mm -hmm. So that helps. It helps knowing that, um, at least by some standardized metric. There's all kinds of intelligence that we can't measure. I happen to have the type that was measured then in the 70s that put me in the top 1%. And so that was something that I found as a data <laughs> for me to inspire me to, you know, walk through the problems and figure it out. I mean, I, I loved math. I was doing calculus, I think in seventh grade, because I just did it on my own, reading the books and doing the problems. And so I found it hard to get deterred by people who said it couldn't be done because I bet you they weren't <laughs> doing calculus mm. on their own and elementary school so absolutely well it's great to hear now I'm going to skirt over slightly which I don't want to do but I want to focus a lot on your current role I know that you went to Google you worked with Sergey Brin I think he poached you and then Mark Zuckerberg he he poached you with a dinner and offer of a lot more money and uh, some yes, interesting yeah. projects Tell me what you took from Google and Oculus, where you worked at Facebook. What were the lessons that you took from those kind of massive organizations that are trying to reinvent the future and what you've taken from that to what you do now, open water? I will forever be so grateful to Sergey. I just saw him about a month ago, Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google, for rescuing me out of another startup I did that was in, started in, amid the economic crisis of 2008. And I take with it, I learned a lot at Google. I made a lot of mistakes at Google. It's a large organization and it's actually pretty hard to do a little startup in a large organization, but it was made much easier through the support of Sergey. But still, I had a lot to learn. I'm actually reading Tony Fidel's book oh, <laughs> who talks about his yeah. struggles at Google. Mm. But, you know, here's the thing is sometimes, I guess in a whole, I take away, there's a lot of sharp elbows and there's a lot of people that at most of these organizations and Google is probably the exception. Google really values highly technical expertise above everything to the annoyance of perhaps people in marketing or lawyers or the rest. But as an engineer, you're sort of top dog at Google. And that helps a lot. That's not true at, at most organizations. But honestly, it's just, I think, easier to do early stage stuff outside of a large company. And it's, a large company can be very good to scale it. 
you really do have to work with lots of different people to do it. And I learned a lot about that sometimes the hard way, but those are maybe the most powerful lessons. Learn more of those at Facebook. <laughs> but I realized it was time for me to get, you know, I, honestly, I left Facebook. I, I didn't want to leave Google, but there were some personal things there, not personal things. There were, there were some difficult challenges in the workplace there for me. And Mark's offer made it um, easy for me to leave. He sort of bought me like I was a company. It was weird um, because he had just gotten Oculus and Oculus, incredible like gaming background, Palmer Lucky, incredible person who revived all this virtual reality stuff I had worked on in the 90s, but with the latest screen technology and electronics, which I knew a lot about how to do high volume manufacture and design and architecture of, and seemed like a really good match. Um, but, you know, where I got to, despite the organizational challenges, was that the manufacturing process development that billions of dollars was being spent on about five years ago to enable next generation virtual reality, augmented reality, metaverse, and LIDAR could enable maybe us to lower the cost of medical imaging and turn it into a therapeutic, both at a thousand times cheaper and something in the size of your smartphone. And that seemed like an idea everybody thought was nuts, which <laughs> probably means it might be a good thing for me to take on because it might work. And so that's why I stepped out of Facebook to start Open Water, the name of this company, I, I left Facebook to start five years ago. It's fantastic. Now, for those that don't know, can you just give us an overview of what open water is, what you're looking to build and, and what stage you're at with it? Yeah, we're trying to basically redefine the future of neuro, of neurodiagnostics seen into your brain and body, but your brain, we've decided to focus on your brain first because it's hard to see inside of your brain and neurotherapeutics. That means we think we can do things like in, we have early good results on curing brain cancer or detecting stroke super early, maybe even before you have the stroke, so no one has to die of stroke or curing Alzheimer's or mental diseases, which is basically neurons misfiring, either firing too much or not enough. And so we have therapies that we're developing. We're in preclinical on most of those, but should be in the clinic. That means in humans this year on many of those. We're using basically holography. We're using, we call it now phase wave technology. Holography is basically recording not just the intensity of light or sound, but also its phase. And by phase, I mean like lights a wave or sounds a wave. And it's where you are in the wave, the crest or the trough. And so there's a lot of techniques I've used for my whole career to record those. But we live in a time right now where a camera chip in your smartphone that costs a dollar has a pixel size that's the size of the wavelength of light. So that means you create some other components so you can make holograms on your camera chip, which is what we're doing. Or you can steer beams into your head, like just ultrasound beams at intensities lower than most every um, pregnant woman and their fetus have had been exposed to over the last 50 years for ultrasound sounds. But we can scan, we can get the ultrasound through your skull by basically taking an array of ultrasound transmitters. And basically we put a wavelength that starts at the node in the first one. And then we delay that wave a little bit in the next transmission, delay a little bit further. And what that does, if you do that along a line is you can form a focus rather than just a wash of ultrasound across. And you can basically use that to couple through the skull. And then you can focus somewhere in the brain, or you can spray the ultrasound everywhere. And what that can do, for example, every aggressive cancer out there has a hard cell membrane. It's rigid. And that's part of a property of a fast growing cancer cell. And so if we make the frequency of the ultrasound match the size of that cancer cell, we can bust that cancer cell open, but not harm any of the healthy tissue, not harm the neurons that are flexible and don't, they grow slowly. They don't have these hard membranes. And what that does is actually release them into the brain for, for right now, glioblastoma is a death sentence. They pull it out a tumor, but then little cells hide out in the neurons, but they've got these mechanical properties that we can, we think, um, burst the cancer cell. And then what that does is release a vaccine 
So then your immune system does the rest of the job. There's a vaccine for the cancer inside of the cancer. It's just your immune system can't see it through that hard cell. And so it, it kills you. It's a death sentence to get this. And we could probably do this once we get this working for all other aggressive cancers where right now chemotherapy is used, which while it can help, it also harms your healthy cells, as we all know, or radiation therapy, for example, that that's also true. So that's pretty exciting. We're excited about that, but that's not even our first product. Our first product answers this question of why do people die of stroke? I mean, if you think about it, it's a plumbing problem. There's a clot that just needs to be removed. There's a drug in a small stroke that can remove it. And in a large stroke, you can use a catheter to pull the larger clot out. If you could diagnose stroke and pull that clot out, there would be no damage from stroke for 90% of the time. But the problem is there's no way to diagnose stroke because there's no way to see blood flow in the brain. So we figured out how to see blood flow in the brain with the old holography trick or phase wave trick by using that, those camera chips and a laser in this case. And what happens, you know how I, I explained <laughs> back when I was a teenager and starting in college, the hologram only came out if nothing moved in the room not a fraction even of the wavelength of light. So you get a terrific high contrast hologram on your camera chip when you pulse the laser in, because you move as a bo your body moves over seconds, but over like a hundred microseconds, not that much. The only thing moving in your brain is blood. And if you get a really high contrast hologram on one side of your forehead, but not the other, that is bad. That means there's nothing moving there. There's no blood. It means you have a severe stroke. And if we can get that clot removed through the catheter within two hours, it's called a thrombectomy. You've got a 90% chance of no neural deficit whatsoever for what right now is the number two killer in the world. People with these large vessel occlusions either die or don't walk again, don't talk again, don't have a job again, because the large vessels, if you think of like the blood vessels, like a tree, they're a big trunk on the tree. And if that's blocked, everything down the line, a huge part of the volume of your brain dies. We have no way to bring the neurons back to life. So that's the first product so that EMTs and paramedics and whatever hotels and convention centers and sports stadiums can have a way to fast diagnose what it is because there is no way to see blood flow right now throughout the whole brain. And there's no way to diagnose a large vessel occlusion. And if there was, we could save vast, vast numbers of people. So that's the first product. That's actually incredible. Now tell me what form does it take? Because I've seen you do talks where you discuss what it might look like. Say you've got somebody who's, you know, normal life carrying on their duties. Is this something that they could have at home? A device? How does it work? Yeah. There's no reason this has to cost more than a smartphone, although for our initial business model, we'll probably be paid per diagnosis, sort of like software as a service. But like in the case of stroke, 25% of strokes are repeat strokes. There's also genetic linkages to mm. strokes. About 30% of the chance of having a stroke is determined genetically. So if you have it in your family, you might want one because what can happen is if you don't feel well, if you get slouched and tired, Here's the question is, do you get yourself to the hospital in case it was a stroke or do you go and take a nap hoping you'll feel better later? The problem is there's no way to know at home and a certain percentage of people decide to take a nap instead thinking, yeah, they'll just wake up and feel better. They had a tough day, whatever. It's too late once those neurons die. And so if you could figure out, is it just a headache or and indeed with blood flow, there's other things we might be able to do like that. Apparently blood flow changes precede migraines and those are smaller in different spots, but we basically have, it's almost like a AR VR headset, except it's, it looks at the, the forehead. There's three different arteries on the forehead that you can do thrombectomy on the, all of the large vessels on which thrombectomy is done are on the forehead. So we send a laser in that we made, it was a really hard to make laser that a kind of laser where you can make holograms. It's called coherent, which means all of the waves are all lined up, you know, kind of like ocean waves where they're all different, slightly different wavelengths, which enables us to see this change in phase by anything moving. And so that's now, it was the size of a room a few years ago, <laughs> half a million dollars, but 
we had to make it work at any size first and now we've shrunk it and we've got a small one in the units that have been in hospitals now for a year where we're testing this, we're scaling up those clinical trials and we have a sample of one that's just, you know, the size of my pinky fingernail. So that's where that can be in terms of size, because it is really slipstreaming on the laser development that's been funded by LIDAR, which can enable autonomous driving. It's so exciting. When I said to you before we started recording, I'm so excited about what you're working on. I think there's not enough people talking about it. So you're obviously extremely excited. You know that it's working and you know that at some point in hopefully the near future, it will be available to a lot more people. But there's other aspects to it. So one thing I've heard you talk about a lot, you've done TED Talks and and other talks where you talk about telepathy. And that's something that's really, really interesting to me as well. Is this something, I know it's almost like a byproduct. That's not the thing you're perhaps focusing on. But in terms of telepathy, where are we at with the possibility that maybe perhaps we can, at the end of the day, upload our memories, but not by inserting any kind of USB, but literally through telepathy? How would it work? Yeah, I've a lot of billionaires are <laughs> doing, you know, elective brain surgery to try to enable brain computer interfaces. Having had brain surgery and it really being the hardest thing I've ever done. I had to do it to live or die. I think people will do it to live or die to communicate, but that's not a billion people. And so I think it has to be a non-invasive wearable or something like that. And so we are also developing technologies for brain computer interface, but really where I get to is we want to save your mind before we read your mind is just more urgent and more important, but the very technologies we're developing to read and write our brains can also be used as has been shown by a number of academic groups using MRIs, using the video form of MRIs. It's called functional magnetic resonance imaging. And that looks at oxygen use in a brain. And by collecting many hours of graduate students, usually as graduate students, it's how they get their PhDs, looking at images, listening to words, the computer can then infer from the data alone, from the scan of where oxygen is being used, where oxygen is being used, that's the active part of your brain, where it's not being used is currently inactive. And so you can look at these patterns. So our technology can also do that and actually do the blood flow as well (laughs) and look at other forms of neural activity. And so I think it's coming. I think you know, where I get to is I actually had lunch this week with a really interesting implant where the implant is through, is in a blood vessel and that talks to your neurons. So you're not actually having to drill a hole in your head, which is exciting. There's a new technology, a company called Synchron. And and it's interesting. It's actually by a guy that does thrombectomies day in and day out. So it's, it's kind of, we were talking about thrombectomies as well. We had a lovely lunch this week and what he's doing is crude. He's enabling paraplegics and people who can't talk with Parkinson's to text message. It's slow, but it's faster than what Stephen Hawking had. So that's great, you know, but when does it get really good? I want to dump, I think visually, I just want to dump a rough cut of an idea I have um, to my computer and then refine it and let other other colleagues of mine see it rather than try to describe it because I don't describe it as well. Or also be able to share your dreams. And an idea musicians I know want to dump the dream of music. It's so hard to like get it right on your instruments. It's nice to just do a rough cut as a personal creativity tool, for example. I think that's coming. It will take longer. And I think what's going to happen though is you remember how text to speech was or speech to text was in the late nineties. It's pretty bad. I, I broke an arm at one point and um, had to use it and it was awful. And then it got good all of a sudden. And so I think my concern and the reason we talk about it is while it is crude, I think there's less privacy concerns, but I think we're going to that world and it could be 10 years, it could be 20 years, but that's the kind of time frame to it getting pretty good for these crude rough cuts of things. And so what will we do as we live in this 
all these concerns, my former employer has gotten into lots of trouble with, with privacy concerns. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just stating it as a fact. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all learned in this walk online to social media that it really is different. And we really do need to learn to behave differently. And the next bastion of that is when you transcend language to thought alone how will we deal with that? And I named the company Open Water. Peter Gabriel, a friend of mine and an investor in Open Water, wrote an essay about it, about learning. He thinks, I, well, he, he can say what he thinks. He can read the essay. We probably need to learn how to take swimming lessons to learn how to do this because it's going to be so different. Do you ever have thoughts that you don't communicate? Thoughts that maybe are rude, not nice, combative, inappropriate. You know, (laughs) I think we'll have filters and we'll be able to let some people have access if we wish to, to our innermost thoughts, but block those from others. But, you know, teenagers will probably turn on the filters different ways and maybe get hurt. I don't know. There's a lot to be done as we march and these things start to get better and better, I think for sure. Absolutely. I'm excited about it. But like you said, I can see the the potential ethical side and I've heard you mention before a book called I Know What You're Thinking, which I think highlights the fact that what if someone had a thought and then got tried in court for it as opposed to actually committed a crime? There's so many aspects. And then I started to think, well, if this was commonplace as humans, would we want to find a way to tweak our thoughts so that we seem smarter, less judgmental or like a whole lot, everything would change if everyone could read each other's minds. So I I think it's an interesting view to take and I'm excited about it. It's interesting. I did an interview about it a few years back and two in a row. And one thought, one of the interviews, Jason Ponton, um, who was a then head of MIT Tech Review, thought it was the end of love if we could totally share I think that says something about his relationships more than anything else. He thinks there has to be something hidden. And then I was talking literally to a guy from Fox News and he thought it would be the end of war because we would understand each other. So, you know, I think there's a lot of people that have thought deeply about this for many years. If we can make that perfect thing, I think we're going to get there by, by way of approximation. And there's likely to be some mistakes on the way. And how can we minimize those mistakes is the question that I talk about when I'm with my other neuro friends on what we can do. The country of Chile has made a law saying all brain computer interfaces must be registered as medical devices. So then they will fall under the usage for medical devices. It's interesting to think about that as a way to regulate it. Um, They're coming off of, you know, Pinochet was when the regime disappeared people and a lot of Mm. violence and so forth. So their response to that time is really interesting in what they're putting in their constitution. So they're a leader right now globally in in having laws and policies about brain computer interfaces. I'm going to look into this because I find it utterly fascinating. And until I started researching for you, it's not even something I thought about, which probably shows how yeah. <laughs> I'm not thinking wide enough. But anyway, I mean, the, the minute I saw the professors, when I first saw about a decade ago, professors using MRI machines on graduate students to pull out images they were thinking of or words they're about to say, I instantly thought DARPA must be, or sorry, the defense department must be using this in Guantanamo. You know, I, I don't know that for a fact, but, mm. you know, I wonder if they are or if they did. And is that right? And these are, they're important questions. Absolutely. I was going to ask you, I reached out to Roni Abovitz, who is the founder of Magic Leap. And I, I asked if there was something that he thought I should ask you. And one question he had, which I actually feel like you've almost answered, is what does your world look like in 2035? But I feel like your telepathy answer was somewhat tied into that. Is there anything else you'd add? Well, yeah, we want to lower the cost of healthcare dramatically in diagnosis and therapeutics. So with the rest of the world, we'd like to get to a point where we could cure cancer, brain disease, (laughs) stroke, uh, neurodegenerative disease, and make it affordable for all, not just those in the rich countries. And it is in reach. It's possible. There's so much other work going on that other people are doing that 
we try to help each other to go faster and have more impact more quickly. If there's anyone can do it, I think I have absolute faith that it's you. <laughs> um, my last question, which I ask everyone, is if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you'd offer a younger you? Oh, get an MRI. <laughs> so I didn't have to suffer so long. It's actually interesting that was it ever proposed? Or I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, it wasn't commonplace. I mean, MRIs are expensive now. So I would imagine they were obviously a lot more then. But didn't anyone see signs of you and think, oh, this could be something to do with the brain? I mean, of course, I had really severe headaches, but MRIs were very, uh, you know, they, it wasn't really available in the 70s. I think in the 90s, it was in reach, but not on the health insurance I had. So save up money and get an MRI. But I suppose really seriously, younger you, I don't know, if I was young today, um, it was lonely. I, I would try to find, and I, there were, you know, a few peers that were on the same wavelengths, if you will. But I was in rural Connecticut, like, but now there's so many groups and kids and I would join a great hackers group online with in the area I liked like optics, but whatever you like, having a bigger and better community of people that are passionate about the same things that you are is helps you grow in really interesting ways. And it's great to do it with all these great friends. So I wish I had more of that growing up. Thank you so much, Marie-Leo. I have really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for your time. This has been great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the utterly brilliant Dr. Marie-Leo Jetson. And if you want to check out more of her work and the talks and book that she mentions in this episode, then you'll find all the links you need in the show notes. So do check them out. And thank you again to Mary Lou for this incredible conversation. It was an absolute honor of mine and a delight to learn more of her story and to be able to share it with you all. Don't forget to listen to all of my episodes as they come out. You can subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts so you're the first to find out when they're out. Finally, whilst researching for this interview, I found so many wonderful books about telepathy and our conscious mind, which led me to a book by American philosopher, historian and psychologist William James. The book is called The Principles of Psychology, which he wrote in 1890. And the quote that I loved and stood out most to me was this. The mind is at every stage a theatre of simultaneous possibilities. Isn't that wonderful? The mind is at every stage a theatre of simultaneous possibilities. <laughs>